0: welcome back to The Crucible. The Crucible is a new podcast I have developed to uh, essentially equip Christians to place all different kinds of thoughts, ideas, philosophies, and religions to place them in the heat of the crucible of scripture, to basically apply the pressure of scripture to mold and refine all these different truth claims to the ultimate standard Of Scripture. If there's any impurities that are forced out of these ideas, we will reject them. What remains, uh, we will form and refine to Scripture. Well, if you caught my last episode, which actually was two weeks ago now, you know that I talked on some issues of the Reformation uh, regarding Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, and other issues, and the episode was essentially designed to communicate. Uh, what I love about Protestantism. As an evangelical Protestant myself, I love Protestantism. I think we get authority right. I think we get the gospel right. And I think we are just, frankly, better at doing church history uh, than our Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Mormon, and Jehovah's Witness counterparts. But it being Reformation Month, yes, October is Reformation Month. October 31st is not Halloween. Of course, many people do celebrate Halloween, but in my religious nerdy perspective, October 31st is not Halloween. It is Reformation Day as 1517 on October 31st in the year 1517, I should say, uh, was when essentially we celebrate Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, which many consider to be the spark of the Reformation. So it's been 506 years since the Reformation began, at least in popular thought, and I want to spend our time together covering basically some more material on what is Protestantism, what did the Reformation create and cultivate in Christendom, uh, basically to lead where we are today. So this might be material you already know, but if not, this will be a great episode to kickstart your love for the Reformation and to intellectually stimulate you to understand more of what makes Protestantism Protestantism. Well, last episode, I referenced something called the five solas of the Reformation. We're going to unpack those more today, but I also want to start even simpler and recognize that many church historians understand there were two causes to the Reformation. There was a uh, material cause to the Reformation and a formal cause to the Reformation. The formal cause or principle is basically what formed, what uh, what brought about Uh, the Reformation itself. And the formal cause is often called sola scriptura, which is one of the five solas of the Reformation, which we'll get into in a few minutes. Embracing this formal cause or sola scriptura naturally leads to the material cause of the Reformation, or what was the substance, what were the Reformers teaching at the heart of their movement. And the material cause of the Reformation or material principle is called justification by faith alone Uh, this is also another sola called sola fide uh, in which we'll unpack more in a moment but i want you to grasp these two principles and causes because um, where you land on these will determine how you understand the reformation if you embrace this formal and material principles of the reformation if you embrace sola scriptura if you embrace sola fide then naturally you will be a protestant through and through If you come to reject Sola Scriptura and reject Sola Fide, then you will by definition never be a Protestant or a consistent one at that. So these ideas are essential. I'll unpack more of those two causes in what is known as the five solas. The five solas of the Reformation are this. The first one is Sola Scriptura, the second one is Sola Gratia, the third one is Sola Fide, the fourth one is Solus Christus, and the fifth one is Sola Deo Gloria. These five solas capture the heart of the Reformation, and all Protestants, at least theologically conservative Protestants, find their agreement and unity in these five solas. So let's start by defining what we mean. Sola Scriptura is Latin for scripture alone. This simply teaches that scripture alone is our only infallible authority for faith and practice. One misconception about Sola Scriptura is that we only use the Bible for understanding everything. And that is not true. The Bible does not have exhaustive knowledge about everything that exists. For example, you can't turn to Leviticus 18 and understand how to change the oil in your car. <laughs> but we understand when it comes to faith and morals, when it comes to things necessary for salvation, Scripture is fully sufficient and our only infallible authority. Again, Protestants have other authorities. We have confessions of faith. We have pastors. We embrace elements of church tradition, but ultimately all of those can be fallible. The only infallible source is scripture and scripture alone. As I move through, I'm going to stress on not just positively what Protestants teach, but understand that these were designed to distinguish them from Roman Catholics uh, in the 16th century, that these were designed to say something positively, but also negatively to say, here is what we believe and Here's what we don't believe. So I'm going to contrast each Sola with what they were distinguishing from Roman Catholicism. So again, Sola Scriptura saying scripture alone is our only infallible authority. This is contrasted with Roman Catholicism, which teaches, yes, scripture is infallible, but so is, um, the Roman tradition. So is the Roman magisterium. Now, I don't have time to define all this in depth, but please know not all of tradition is infallible in Roman thought. Not every magisterial teaching is infallible in Roman thought. But for example, the Pope is infallible when only he is speaking ex cathedra, or basically from his authoritative chair and office, to the whole church on matters of faith and morals when he intends to bind the faithful to a doctrine. Um, So not everything's infallible uh, in papal thought, but certain things are. Furthermore, not all of tradition is infallible, but capital T Roman tradition is. So for example, ecumenical council decisions. These are councils that allegedly have representatives from the entire church. For for example, the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century is one of the most famous ones, or the Council of Trent, the the great anti-Reformation council. Or more recent ones like Vatican II and Vatican I are considered ecumenical and infallible uh, traditions uh, and councils in their perspective. So Roman thought says scripture, the Pope, in certain statements and certain tradition has infallible authority. So you have three infallible authorities in Roman thought. Protestants say no, scripture alone is infallible. We believe the Council of Nicaea has authority. We believe your local church pastor has authority. We believe there are different authorities and and, and, um, traditions and standards we can use, but all of them must submit to scripture because scripture alone is infallible. So that's important to understand because once you open up the door to other infallible authorities rather than scripture, you will come to radically different conclusions than Protestants. But I'm convinced this is what Jesus and the apostles understood, that I believe they would have practiced, or at least um, expected the church to practice sola scriptura. So let me give you one verse of many that proves sola scriptura. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 says this, all scripture is inspired by God or God-breathed and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. Here we see that scripture is described as God-breathed, as inspired. Take note in the rest of the Bible, you will never find tradition described as being inspired by God or God-breathed. You'll never find that a Pope, or you won't find a Pope in scripture to begin with, but you'll never find that a teaching of the magisterium or church teaching in general is described as God-breathed or inspired outside the scriptures. So the scripture are alone as described as God breathed and inspired, therefore they are our only infallible authority and our highest authority. <clears throat> Let's move forward here though to sola gratia. This is the teaching that we are justified by grace alone. That um this is, is basically that salvation and justification specifically. Justification is when we are declared right in God's law court. That justification is because of grace alone. That this is contrasted with the idea that justification involves grace and merit. Merit simply is the reward for good works. And the reformer said, no, salvation and specifically justification is only grace. Grace is a uh, basically a gift or a good thing you receive, even though you don't deserve it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Scripture is clear, justification and salvation is solely a work of grace, not grace and merit. In the Roman Catholic system, grace is certainly involved in your justification, but your justification can be increased, maintained, um, and even in a qualified sense, earned based off your cooperation with grace, and merit so i'm not going to get into the weeds but in roman catholicism there's two types of merit there's condign and congruent merit uh, one merit that strictly earns reward from god while another merit that essentially works with the grace of god where god freely rewards not as strictly earned like a payment for a debt but simply from his good gifts scripture knows not of this distinction between works and grace as ephesians 2 says it is clearly a contrast between grace and works grace and merit, not grace and certain types of merit or grace and certain types of work. Protestants certainly agree that grace uh, causes good works. That's called sanctification. In fact, the very next verse in Ephesians In fact, it's Ephesians 2 verse 10 uh, captures this where it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. So grace does cause good works. But in terms of our justification and salvation, it is grace alone, not grace and your works and your qualified merit that eventually gets you into heaven. So again, sola, sola. Grazia, grace alone is sufficient for your justification. It is all a gift. It is all grace. It is not a mixture of grace and merit. Moving forward, though, to sola fide, which means we are justified uh, through uh, grace, or I should say justified by grace through faith. So again, our justification, our salvation, we could say, the cause of it is grace, but it is our faith or our trust in Christ. And that alone, that captures Jesus for our salvation. In fact, the reformers described faith as an empty hand where we reach out to Christ and Christ uh, grasps it and fills it with all of his benefits. This is, again, to contrast a teaching that says your justification and your salvation is a result of not just grace and merit, but also of faith and works, faith and obedience. But faith alone, in fact, our justification being by faith alone is so clear and overwhelming in scripture. It is like an avalanche that there are so many texts, specifically in the New Testament, throughout the gospels and Pauline epistles that capture this. But let me give you just one. Romans chapter four, verse five says this, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Take note here that to the one who does not work, the one who does not have works, the one who has no obedience, in fact, he's still ungodly, but this ungodly disobedient sinner believes in him or in Christ who justifies the ungodly. This faith is considered righteousness. This faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, we could say this faith that connects you to Christ gives you his righteousness, which earns your salvation on the great day of judgment. This is why the thief on the cross who lived a disobedient, ungodly life who was rightfully being crucified next to Jesus could look to Jesus and simply say, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. On what basis could Jesus look at an ungodly sinner criminal who is crucified next to him and say, you're actually righteous? That thief on the cross had no righteousness of his own, but because he trusted in Christ, he possessed Christ's righteousness, and therefore he was justified on that day. So again, Romans 4, 5, to the one who does not work, but only has faith, faith alone, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness, specifically because his faith connects him to Christ, who is his righteousness righteousness. Again, the Roman system says that faith is important just like grace, but it needs works. It needs merit in order to truly become inwardly and ontologically righteous, something that Protestants call sanctification in order to be saved and justified on that great day of judgment. This is not uh, the gospel of Paul or of Jesus, and the reformers captured it in the Latin saying sola fide Moving forward here, we have Solus Christus. This is essentially the idea that Christ alone uh, earns everything in our justification and salvation. That Christ alone deserves all the credit and all the glory. What do we mean by this? We mean that Christ lived the life we should have lived. So he was perfectly obedient to the law, earning the perfect righteousness that deserves heaven. Christ died the death we should have died. He was crucified on the cross, being treated as if he was a sinner to die in our place. And then he rose from the dead, showing that we too will conquer death because of the work of Christ. So when we think of that final day of judgment, where we stand before the judgment seat of God and God basically with a gavel in his hand says, are you guilty or are you innocent? We're not going to be pleading our, our, our unrighteousness. We're not going to be pleading our sin and say, treat us as if we are righteous. No, we'd be found guilty. But we'll say, don't look at us. Look at Christ in us. Look at Christ's righteousness and declare him justified, and that will be our justification. Look at his death and understand that sin has been paid for, that he died the death I should have died. Look to Christ, and we have every hope to be justified. Look within ourselves. We have every reason to understand we deserve condemnation. This is captured in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. It says this, "...but whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as lost because of Christ." More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them mere rubbish so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings Being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here Paul is clear that he counts everything as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. That even though he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he was a Jew of Jew, that he tried his best to be obedient to the law. Paul says, I count it all as trash. For the sake of knowing Christ, because once you possess Christ, you have everything you need. Paul says, I don't seek a righteousness of my own derived from the law. I seek the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. Christ is his righteousness. That's why when we possess Christ by faith alone, We possess all of Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. It is imputed to us. It is considered ours. Therefore, why would we look anywhere else? If we have Christ, we have everything we need. Again, this is in contrast to the Roman teaching that, yes, Christ is involved in our justification. But, again, your suffering, your obedience, and even—we'll get to this in a moment— even the obedience and suffering of the saints and Mary herself— is all woven together in a tapestry to hopefully earn your justification one day. Let me remind you, in case you don't know this, in the Roman system, if you fall into mortal sin, you must confess to a priest, and the priest will give you a penance, an action, basically, to satisfy the temporal punishment for your sin. And if you don't complete that sufficiently enough, you will go to purgatory where you will suffer the temporal punishments for your sin until you're pure enough to get into heaven. And if you don't want this, you can purchase an indulgence for your loved one who may be in purgatory, which captures some of the righteousness of Christ, the saints, and Mary herself to apply or impute to your account so you can get to heaven quicker. Guys, this is not Christ alone. This is Christ and you. This is Christ and the saints. This is Christ and Mary. Christ's suffering and righteousness is a part of the process of justification, but so is Mary's suffering and righteousness. So is the saints' suffering and righteousness. So is your suffering and righteousness. And this is in what Paul says in Philippians. He says, I count everything, even the good things I've done, as rubbish to know Christ, because Christ alone, solus Christus, is sufficient for my justification. Let me close here with soli, soli deo gloria. This is the idea that the glory goes to God alone. Let me quickly get to Isaiah 42, verse 8, where God says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to idols. God will not give his glory, will not share his glory with anyone else. He has all a creation designed to glorify him, and especially when it comes to our justification and our salvation. All the glory goes to God alone. We will not share that glory with Mary and the saints. We will not share that glory with my own obedience. We will count all of that as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. So here's all the Reformation principles in five Latin statements. Sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, uh, solus or soli, uh, solus Christus, I should say, and soli deo gloria, that our justification, our salvation according to the scriptures alone is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Saints, if you recognize this as biblical teaching, you are a Protestant. And that is faithful to what Paul taught, to what Jesus taught. I believe to what many of the early church fathers taught, but not what non-Protestant churches teach. Saints, this is the Reformation heritage. Uh, This teaching is not new, but has taken on, I think, a a fuller and more popular and bolder uh, look and teaching since the 500 years of the Reformation. And these are gospel truths that need to be fought for and defended today. Again, as you approach the Christian life, if you embrace the formal material principle of the Reformation, that scripture alone is our infallible authority, not our only authority, but our only infallible authority, and that the gospel is that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone, then you are a Protestant. And this is another reason why I love Protestantism, because it captures the gospel. It captures what scripture teaches. Um, and this is, is a life-giving message. Um, in fact, when we are living in a culture where people are wondering, is there a God? Is there not? People are depressed, anxious. Uh, they aren't sure what tomorrow brings. Suicide rates are up. People are grasping for truth. And this teaching of, of a a gospel of free grace where Christ is our righteousness, his life is ours. His death is ours. It's all grace. It's all a free gift. This is like an ice cold glass of water on a parched lungs in the middle of a desert. We are in the middle of a spiritual desert where there are false religions, atheism reigns, and this gospel and this Reformation truth is a life-giving spring. This is what we crave, this is what we need, and this is the message that we teach, and it's the message that gives life. So let's embrace our Reformational heritage and defend it because it is the truth itself. Well, Saints, thanks for joining me on The Crucible this week. I hope Uh, You learn some new things. I hope you're reminded of some truths. Maybe you already knew. Next week and for the rest of October, we will continue in our Reformation conversation. Um, And I think next week I'll cover some some church history that may may be not known so popularly uh, to many Christians. Some church history uh, that informs um, some of our Reformation heritage that often gets overlooked. So it will be a treat next week. I hope you will join me right here on the Crucible. God bless you.